I'm uh, in what's known as Generation X. And Generation X is that generation that was born uh, through mid-60s through up until about 1980 or so. And one of the things that I remember very well when I was a child uh, was something called the Rubik's Cube. And many of you will remember that. And what I remember distinctly about the Rubik's Cube was that it seemed as if one Christmas it went from nobody had heard of this thing to every kid in my class had one. And every kid in my class had one, and unfortunately, I was one of those kids who, when the Rubik's Cube got out of its box and you started to scramble it, you simply could, I could never find a way of putting it back together. But I would have a couple of my friends in the class, and they would be the stars for at least a few weeks, because whenever anybody had a Rubik's Cube they couldn't solve, they gave it to the friend, and 20 minutes later, boom, it was back the way it was supposed to be. Some people had that ability to take this puzzle and turn it into something comprehensive or something cohesive and turn it back to what it's supposed to be. But most of us were simply looking with envy, a sort of Rubik's Cube losers, as it were. I mention that because I think sometimes preachers approach Trinity Sunday in a similar kind of apprehension. We sort of see it as a Rubik's Cube that was laid on our pulpit, all mixed up. And if you're one of the precious few preachers that is able to weave his way uh, through the dangers of many heresies in speaking about the Trinity, then you've really scored the gold star because you've solved the Rubik's Cube and the puzzle. Yet I'm convinced that God is not interested in giving us intellectual puzzles to struggle through. God does not want to score us based on how well we can put a Rubik's Cube together. I'd like to suggest today that though the Trinity is often presented in ways that seem complex to us and intellectually challenging, I think, of course, the Church has held on to this doctrine and uh, told us that this is an, a genuine and true insight into God's real character and personhood because it helps us better relate to God and better understand the God who loves us so dearly. I'd like to speak to you today about why the Trinity is something that helps us relate better to God and I'm going to, although it's Trinity Sunday and I was tempted to make three points, I'm just going to make two today. Two points is to say that God's uh, presentation to us as a divine trinity is something that helps us understand that God is above us and beyond our understanding. And it also helps us to understand that God loves us and wants us to know him and have a deeper relationship with him. So I'm going to begin on first point about why it's important and why the trinity shows us that God is above us and beyond our understanding. And I'm going to do that by giving you an example of where a person is pigeonholed and therefore is not fully understood. Pigeonholing is sort of a, 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 a word or a, a slang term for saying, I've got you pegged and I've got you figured out just by glancing at you. Many of you will have been paying attention to the news over the past few weeks and heard about a really tragic and sad incident that happened at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. What happened there a few weeks ago is that two uh, African-American young men came, and they were intending to meet a friend there. They had agreed to meet up at Starbucks, just like often happens, right? You'll say, I want to meet a friend at Timmy's. They're not here, so you go and sit down and wait to order before uh, until your friend comes. But the manager, instead of saying, uh, listening to their explanation, just told them to leave. And when they wouldn't leave because they said, I have a right to be here, as anybody else does, she phones the police, and they get arrested. And it becomes a national incident. And so Starbucks' very CEO came up and apologized for what had happened because it exacerbated racial tension. Now, what seemed to have happened there is that the manager looked at these two young men and because of the color of their skin decided, I know what you're all about. I have this preconceived notion about what you will be and so I'm going to take you, whoever you are, and slot you into this stereotype. 
because I've got you pegged. And of course, that's a very false stereotype. These were just two people coming who wanted to enjoy Starbucks produce and of course had a terrible experience. Now we can say that about racial tension and say how terrible that is, and of course that's true. The reality is we often do this to people. We take a glance at them and we think, I know all I need to know about you. I'll say to my own discredit, but one of the things that happens to me, as often happens to clergy, is you start to get cynical about the people who come through your doors looking for financial help. When I was in Cornwall in particular, Cornwall uh, has a very large proportion of very poor uh, un under or unemployed people. And so every day, somebody would come through my office while I was there serving, asking for money. Sometimes it would be, I need a meal, and so you would go to the food cupboard and give them something. Sometimes it would be, I need uh, a bus ticket somewhere. Sometimes it would be a big thing, like my rent. Uh, I can't pay my rent. And so we'd always keep a fund there from church funds. A couple of times, though, people told me stories that seemed absolutely convincing. And so that meant I spent a lot of the church's money to help them, and I found out afterwards that it was concocted, all false. And those sorts of things easily make you feel like you've been taken advantage of, and so you don't want to, uh, to listen to people's genuine pleas. And yet there's a man who comes here, and our church supports him. I'll, I'll not uh, tell you who he is because of the anonymity. And so I often found that when he would come through or he'd give me a call and say, I've had this problem or another, I would feel myself tensing up and think, oh, I know what this is about. You know, it was so interesting, though, when I decided I'm not just going to say, here's some money or here's some groceries. To say, can I take you out to lunch before I do that? So I sat down at McDonald's, and I've done that many times with him, and you realize that this is not just a handout. What this is is a real person who has a long story behind him, who has interests, who has many things that are, in fact, you realize this is a person who, in many ways, despite a terrible uh, background, is doing the very best he can. I never would have realized this if I had simply said, I got you paid. We do this with people, and we don't understand the uniqueness and the mystery of what it is to know a person until we let go of our preconceived notions and say, I want to listen to who you are. And I want to know you for who you are and not for what I think you are. I think that's particularly behind the doctrine of the Trinity. When you think, well, how does three persons and one God work out? Well, part of the reason why we're told this is because it's to help us understand that God is above us. And we can't fit God neatly into a tight little bow. That's one of the greatest temptations we have in religious life. When you think, for example, about uh, the Old Testament and the witness that the Old Testament so often has against the sin of idolatry, sometimes you look at the times where it's denounced and you wonder, why are you so harsh? The guy's worshiping a little statue. What's the big deal? When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after God's given him the Ten Commandments and he finds that the Israelites have molded a golden calf and are worshiping this thing, he flips out. You sort of think, okay, chill out a little bit, Moses. Why do you make such a big deal out of it? Because a golden calf is something you can worship and then you can stick in a little box when you don't want it anymore. This is a God within your imagining, within your control, and who is limited by your own limitations. But compare that, however, to what we heard today in our first lesson. From Isaiah chapter 6, if you have a Bible, you can open it up and see it there. But Isaiah chapter 6 is a tremendous vision that Isaiah has. Isaiah is a prophet, and he's somebody who is called to preach the word of God, and he preaches faithfully to kings and to the mighty. He does it without cowardice. He does it with tremendous courage. But here, the prophet is there in the temple, and he is praying, and what do we hear, as Jack read a few moments ago? 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. One called to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called. The house filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you notice Isaiah's reaction when God appears to him? It's not, let me pull out my notepad and fill out seven habits of highly effective prophets. It's not, God, I came to you with question X and you answered it. I'll see you later next time I'm at the temple. Isaiah comes into God's presence and this weird, mysterious vision, I mean, what's, what's that about seraphs with six wings and covering their faces? It's bizarre. But you know what happens? Isaiah is completely undone. Isaiah doesn't know what to say. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I live with unclean people. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm helpless. I'm undone. And then what does God do? God uh, cleanses him of his uncleanness and sends him on a mission that he faithfully does throughout Israel. And Isaiah, to this day, we read through as one of the most important parts of the scripture for understanding who God is and his call to us. When we hold on to that vision of God high and lofty above us. It lets us know that in the midst of our challenges, in which we are tempted to believe God is limited by our limitations, we look to the God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is above us and to realize that in fact he is greater than what we can see or imagine. And that is so important because we often face times in life where we see nothing but limitations and no way out of them. Maybe you struggle with addictions, for example, whether it's food or drink or cigarettes or pornography, many of the things that we find uh, in fact bring us joylessness, that rob us of, of abundant life, we know we want to change, but what happens? So easily you think, I'm going to quit this, and then you can't. And then you say, well, I'm going to quit this, and then you can't. And you give up. There's no way out of this. I will never be healed of this. I will never find recovery. What happens when your God is so small that he's limited by your limitations? You believe that God can't do something as miraculous as freeing you from the thing that is binding you. I'll tell you one of the things that I've, I've often told you about uh, is the struggle I've had lifelong with depression. One of the worst things that depression does is that as you're finding your world gets a little dark, it digs a hole deeper and deeper. And so when you look around and you think to yourself, I feel crummy, not only do you feel crummy, you look around and say, it will never change, ever. You feel you're in a hole and all you do is you look around and you see darkness around. What does the Trinity call us to do? When you're in this hole, not simply to look around, and wonder, how can I possibly climb my way out? It's to look up and say, there's a sky above me. And there was someone above me whose limitations, or he has no limitations. He's a person who is not limited by imagination. He's not limited by what I can see. For in fact, God can do infinitely more than I can ask or imagine. When you're feeling so low that you can't even ask to be freed of it, here is someone who has the power to free us, who uh, freed his own son from the power of sin and death. How great a victory we have and what a great treasure we have in the Trinity to say, don't let your conception of who God is be limited. Instead, look to the God who is above us and whose greatness is so great we cannot wrap our mind around it because we need that kind of God when we're in the midst of the troubles that are so limiting to us. We need someone so far above us and so powerful and mysterious that he can free us even when it seems that there is no way out. 
But I mentioned to you a second point. The second point uh, is something deeply important to hold on to as well, because it may be that we hear this and think God is above us, he is high and mighty, we cannot fathom his depth, that therefore we cannot relate to him. And yet the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God at his very heart is a God of a relationship who invites us into the relationship that he has always had throughout eternity. God has never been alone. He has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although it's hard for us to understand, what we see primarily in the face of Jesus is how God reaches out to us and says, I do not want you to be alone. You are made in my image, and I want a relationship with you that you can respond to. Many of you, of course, will know a very famous figure named Helen Keller. Helen Keller was born in the 1880s and died in the 1960s. And when she was a little child, at 19 months old, she contracted an illness, probably scarlet fever, that at the end of it made her blind and deaf. And because she was so young when she contracted the disease, had never learned to speak. And so she was locked in a dark, silent prison, unable to communicate with anyone, and no one could communicate with her. And she had the good fortune of having a family who loved her, and she had the good fortune of being a person who was quite intelligent. And so they hired a tutor for her. Um, that woman, I think, was Ann Sullivan was her name. And Ann Sullivan came and was hired to tutor Helen Keller to help her communicate. And it was a frustrating, long process. She came up with the idea that what she would do is uh, to teach her how to communicate was to begin by giving her household objects. And she would put that household object in her hand, and then she would write on the other palm, write out what the name of this object for a long time, Helen Keller couldn't figure out what that was. Here's this thing in my hand, and why is she scratching my hand? What's going on? Frustrated, one time she was scratching out a mug, and then she slammed it and burst it into many different pieces. But here's where the penny dropped for her. One day, uh, Ann Sullivan wrote out water and then poured cold water on the other hand, and suddenly something clicked in Helen's mind. And she realized the thing she's writing here refers to the thing that's happening to my other hand. And from there, it was gangbusters. She couldn't wait to find out the, the, the name of everything in the house. And as she grew, and a very intelligent, curious, driven woman, she also had a speech therapist that was hired to help her. And eventually, she learned how to speak, even though she could never hear or see. She became famous. We know her name because she became famous as a speaker. She joined the suffragette movement and was very powerful as a speaker, advocating for women's right to vote. Uh, and she traveled around the world, I think 40 different countries she visited, to speak about her experiences and to advocate, of course, for people with disabilities. What a wonderful story that is about how this woman, trapped in a dark prison, was freed from it because a person's uh, dedication to reach into that prison and say, I will communicate with you and teach you to communicate. What is it that we look at in the scriptures? We look at Jesus doing the very same thing. God's desire to communicate with us. Right from the very beginning, we find in Scripture that God creates heaven and earth. We see in Genesis, and he sees everything is good. You know the first time God notes that something is not good? After he's created Adam, the first human being, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Look at how Jesus describes what his ministry is about when he speaks here with Nicodemus. He says, no one has ascended, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, yes, I come from heaven, from the very heart of the Trinity, and I come to you, and I have descended from heaven to be lifted up so that all may see me and relate to me. As hard as it may seem to relate to a God far above us, Jesus comes to us incarnate so that we can relate to our God. That we are not lonely because God saw how loneliness destroys us and he broke into our world by becoming one of us to show us who he is. To break out of our loneliness that we might relate to the God of heaven and earth, the one far above us and know that this God is not unconcerned, that this God loves us and wants us not to be alone, but wants us to have fellowship with him. A wonderful uh, thing to hold on to for us as Christians that the Trinity tells us. God wraps us up into his very life of relationship of love that is at his heart, three persons and one God. And that is so important for us who are called the body of Christ. We, the church, are called the body of Christ, and that tells us, yes, how wonderful it is that God relates to us, but it gives us a mighty challenge. If we are the body of Christ and Christ came to this world to relate to the world and to show them God's love and to let loneliness be banished, then what do you think our calling is the body of Christ on earth? We have a special calling to be people who combat loneliness with the kind of relatedness and loving nature that God has. Are there lonely people in our midst? Are there people who find themselves unable to relate for reasons of health or because maybe they're socially awkward or because life circumstances had conspired against them. What are we doing to ensure that they know who God is through our ministry? Think about the neighborhoods we live in in Barhaven. I've spoken about this so often, but it's so pervasive, the isolation and loneliness people live with today. Or the fake camaraderie we have on social media or how are you doing while well, I'm fine. How many people or ask that question, how are you doing, and expect that the other person is actually concerned and will listen if they're not doing fine. Are there people in our lives for whom we have made clear that if things aren't fine, it's quite okay to tell me about it? How sad it is that we find sometimes even our own friends who find themselves in difficult positions, we find out only later that they've struggled and they've struggled in silence because somehow we've never broken in and allowed them to be honest and allowed them to be safe with us, to know that somebody is going to love them even if their life is not all put together. We're the kind of church that lets that same spirit that animated Jesus, that animated the early church, to allow that spirit to give us a vulnerability and an openness to actually care for the people in our midst who are desperately longing for relationship. As I can tell you, it is so hard to love the God we do not see if we do not love the brother that we can see. Are we loving the brothers and the sisters that we do see and showing them by our actions and by our attitude that they have a God who is more than an abstract notion in heaven but is a God who actively loves them? I tell you, they're not going to believe what we say unless they see what we do. What a great privilege to show the lonely and broken of this world that there is hope. What a great privilege we have. Let us say today, come Holy Spirit. Help us to have confidence in the Holy Trinity beyond our imagining, but also let us respond to the love we first saw in Jesus becoming one of us, by loving those in our midst who may not be easy to love, but letting them know the same love and the same openness that Christ displayed to the broken and the hurting, showing them that God's love is more than a notion. It is an ideal that is embodied in our lives, a faith that is embodied every day. 
And that is something we can do by the power of God's 